through this series, we've been examining some of the actions, the characters, some of the priorities that exemplify uh, a follower of Jesus Christ or exemplified in Jesus Christ himself and that we can put into practice ourselves as we pursue or as we strive to grow ever more into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, that is a lifelong journey. And for those of us who have been on that journey for a while, you know what I'm talking about when I say that there are some highs and there are some lows. There are some peaks and there are some valleys in that journey. But I think you'd also agree with me when I say it's worth the effort to go through that. Because if we put the effort into pursuing greater Christ-likeness, we then come to this opportunity to experience a genuine encounter in all aspects of our being, in all events of our lives, a genuine experience to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. That helps us to grow in a greater sense of spiritual maturity as well. And so we're going to conclude this series here today by looking at a description of Jesus found in in John chapter 1, verse 14, that that has always fascinated me. Because I think the depth and the richness of just a few simple words just, just so eloquently describes Jesus Christ. And we find this in John chapter 1 where it says, it says, the word became flesh. Jesus Christ became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. See, Jesus dwelt among us full of grace and full of truth. Now, when we hear that position in such a fashion, we we may look at it in terms of of a continuum. We're we're on one end of the continuum, we have grace. And on the other end of the continuum, we have truth. And so then we would say, well, if Jesus came grace and truth, maybe we would plot him somewhere along the continuum there. Maybe maybe 50-50, right in the middle. You know, equal truth, equal grace. And then we would think, well, where do I plot myself then in relationship to Jesus Christ? Which would be a reasonable question. Maybe maybe I'm kind of 70-30, kind of grace, 70-30, maybe I'm 90-10, kind of truth to that side. You know, and now for myself, in, in the different hats that I wear as, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, this, is, this, this verse and this description of having grace and truth is something I'm constantly finding myself, kind of measuring myself against, trying to find balance between these things. And at times when I look into myself, I think, well, maybe I'm a little bit too strong on grace. Maybe I'm overstressing acceptance without, you know, discipline and conviction. But other times I think, well, maybe I'm too strong on truth where where I'm focused on right and wrong and convictions, and that's the primary thing. And it's difficult at times in our lives to find this balance between grace and truth as we live out our lives in different situations we come across. Now, a few years ago, I came across a story that that I always liked that really showed, I think, wisdom in finding balance between grace and truth. And it's a story of a father who was coaching a, an eight-year-old's baseball team. And, well, some of the kids were excellent. But some of them, not so much. Some of them just didn't quite grasp the whole game. And, in fact, there was enough of those kids that the team didn't win a game all season. Now, they find themselves in the last inning of the last game of the season. They're down by one run, and there's two outs. And wouldn't you know it, the boy who comes up to bat is a boy who had not hit a ball all year, and he had not caught a ball all year. Now, he steps up to bat, and and to the surprise of the world, he hit a single. And so now he finds himself for the first time of this year, and he's on first base. And then the coach sees the next batter coming up is the slugger of the team. And he's thinking, 
just maybe, is it possible that this, that our slugger who always hits is going to knock this out of the park? We're going to win the game, but the person who comes around to score the first run will be this guy that he really deeply cares about on first base who hasn't hit, who hasn't caught, who hasn't done much to contribute towards the team. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, the slugger hits that ball and it is sailing towards the outfield. And the boy on first base starts running to second base, but then he notices the ball is coming for him. So he stops, uncertain of the rules of the game, and he catches the ball. (laughs) Well, if you know the rules of baseball, in line with the umpire's response, you're out, and the game's over. Now, the boy stood there holding the ball. The, The coach is like, can't believe that this has just happened, but without missing a beat, the coach looks at the rest of the team, and he goes, you guys, cheer. And so all the team goes, you caught the ball, (laughs) and they celebrate. And the boy was on his way to second, had no idea what was going on, why he was out. He had no idea why the game was over, and they lost, but all he knew is he had hit the ball, and he had caught the ball. And the coach was teaching the team, that's worth celebrating, even in those moments. You see, Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. Where's the balance in there? Well, you know, the first question I asked you actually is a, is a poor question. I should apologize for that first question I asked you because it's not fair to look at it on a continuum, actually. Because it's not a matter of measuring this on a continuum where, where we are sometimes half grace, half truth. Where we are all grace on Monday, all truth on Tuesday. But when we look at the description of Jesus, it says he is all grace, all truth, all the time. That means he is always full of both grace and truth, never compromising either one of them. And often when we read about Jesus' encounters with the religious leaders, this balance and this aspect of grace and truth is at the nature, at the basis of the questions and the situations they pose to him. Because they would pose these questions and situations to him, trying to test how he understood, how he taught the truth that they knew so well. And time and time again, he would stymie them because he was able to remain true to the law while extending incredible grace to all people that he encountered. And one such time is found in Luke chapter 15, where Jesus is sitting with tax collectors and sinners. And the the passage also tells us that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law gathered around at that moment. Now, Luke provides us with a glimpse into the hearts and the motives of these religious leaders and these Pharisees that were there. Because he says that that they are muttering to themselves. And they were saying, look at this man. How can he sit and eat with sinners? How can he possibly sit with tax collectors? And as they say this, you you can just hear their words dripping with disdain. That Jesus would sit with a tax collector. That he would sit with a sinner. Because you see, sitting with these people and sharing a meal with them was accepting them. It was showing acceptance that we can sit and share a meal together. It was humanizing them when these other people would want to dehumanize them. It was a demonstration of grace that showing that Jesus loved them. Now, have you ever been in a crowded room where it's quite loud, maybe to, in the foyer or at a reception somewhere, and, and the volume of the room is really, really loud, and so in order for you to talk to the person in front of you, you have to raise your voice a little bit so that people can hear you, even if it is close. And as you're talking to them in this elevated voice, suddenly the room goes silent, and the only voice left is yours because you're speaking rather loudly. Have you ever had that happen to you? If you do, hopefully you weren't saying something inappropriate, because if they were, you have to backpedal rather quickly in that moment. Well, perhaps something similar happened as these Pharisees were saying these things about Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners because they have no chance to backpedal on what they were saying. Jesus simply looks at them, and when he looks at them, he shares them a parable, a parable we're going to have a look at today. 
And as we do walk through this parable today, what we're going to witness is this beautiful balance, an example of grace and truth. And it's going to give us a glimpse into what I think we could refer to as the Father heart of God. That Father heart of God that has this beautiful balance that is full of grace and full of truth. And sets an example for all followers of Jesus Christ to pursue in our interactions with all the people that we come into contact with. And so this parable begins in Luke 15, verse 1 through 11. Or sorry, verse 11 through 24. Where we read the story of, of a man who had two sons. And the younger comes to his father one day and says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Essentially what he's saying to his father is, you know that inheritance that's coming to me when you die? I don't want to wait for you to die. I just want it now. So give me what's mine now. Which, when we hear it that way, we understand that's deeply disrespectful. And, and it was. And it brings really great shame to the whole family. But the father makes no attempt to stop him. And he hears the request. And now we don't know the motivation behind the request. We don't, we don't know if this younger son was, was feeling too kind of constrained with the rules of the house. We don't know if he was tired of this authority of dad over him. We don't know if he was feeling too confined, if, if he just needed to spread his wings, if you will. We're not told whatever it was, but what we are told is that the father gives him his part of the inheritance. And so the younger, younger son sets off for a distant country where he begins to squander his wealth on wild living. He decides that now's his chance to spread those wings. He's going to go be his own person. He's going to make his own choices. He's going to choose what his values are, and he's going to live his life his way. And when he arrives in this town, in this distant land, well, he's the new rich kid in town. So we can assume that he was a very popular guy. And we can tell from the story that he ended up heading down a path that led to parties and boozing and girls and attracted all that kind of attention from that type of a crowd. But the reality of that type of a lifestyle is if you want to play, you got to pay. And he did pay time and time and time again until eventually the money runs out. And when the money runs out, so too do the friends. So he finds himself in this distant land, this distant country, broke. But only broke, he finds himself alone. And then we're also told that all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it, at the same time, A severe famine comes to the whole country, and everybody begins to be in need. And so this desperate situation that he found himself in with no family, with no friends, with no money, gets even worse. And the point of which the only work he can find is to feed slop to pigs. Now, if you grew up on a farm, you might be thinking, well, feeding slop to pigs isn't that bad of a job. It's just what you do at 5 a.m. But when you are a, a Jewish person in this time, pigs were considered unclean. And therefore, to be a servant to an unclean pig was one of the lowest of the lowest things that you could ever be associated with for a job. And so he finds himself at this rock-bottom moment where he is wallowing in the filth among pigs in a famine in a land that mirrors the famine that is growing in his own heart. And he reaches a point where he is hungry enough that he contemplates eating the slop that he's feeding to the pigs. And he has truly hit that rock-bottom. And he doesn't know what to do anymore. And then we come to one of the most important verses in this whole story in verse 17 where it says, and then he came to his senses. And then he came to his senses in that moment where everything changes. And he starts to think back, back to a time when when he was with his father and he was back in that place at that time thinking, you know, my father has workers and, and they don't have any needs like this. He looks after them. Not only... 
did he have needs to be filled, but, but they're not starving, and here he is starving. So as he contemplates what was and what currently is, he decides to humble himself. And he humbly re- decides to return home, to swallow his pride, to admit that he was wrong, thinking at the very least my father will give me an employee number, and I can be an employee. At least I'll have a paycheck. At least I'll still maybe have some sorrow, but I won't be hungry. I might have regret, but at least I'll be warm. And so he determines what he'll say when he gets home. He determines that he will say, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. And, and that's the truth. That's the truth, Father. I've sinned against you and against heaven. And because of that, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I don't want to be called your son, but just, just make me a hired hand. It, just make me a hired hand, Father. And so he starts walking home, and as he's walking, he's rehearsing this line that he'll say to his father when he finally arrives. And, and while he's still at a distance, the father sees him coming up over the hill, and his father knows in an instant, that's my boy. And as they're still a long ways away, just overwhelmed with joy, the father who sees his son coming, hikes up his tunic, and he runs out to meet him on the path to come. And he throws his arms around his son, and he starts kissing him. And as he's doing this, the son starts his speech. He starts saying, Father, I have sinned against... But his father interrupts him. And he says to his servants, he says, bring out the best robe. Because everyone must know that this son of mine is, has distinction in this place. And he says, and put a ring on his finger, because this son of mine has authority in my land. And he says, put sandals on his feet because only a slave would walk around barefoot and this man is not a slave, he is family. And he says, slaughter that fattened calf because we are going to have a party. For this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. Now as we hear this story, which is often referred to as the prodigal son, does part of that story at all remind you of any part of your story? Now, maybe there was a time when you were running from God or a time when you ran from God. You know, if we're honest, I think each of us have seasons like that. I know I certainly have seasons like that in my life where each one of us from time to time will rebel against God. You might say something like, I just have to break free or, or, or there's just something different about me. I don't fit in there and so I, I need to separate myself or, or I don't belong here and so I'm going to wander away. And when that happens, quite often it comes with this desire to, to gain control or to gain freedom, to live a life you know, in, in our choice, in the way that we want to do it. And like the prodigal son, when we make those choices, it, metaphorically speaking, it's like we're saying our father is dead. It's like we're saying there is no God, or, or some people would even go to the point of saying, well, I am God, and so I will choose and we find ourselves in this headspace we set out for a distant land by starting to put distance between us and God. And it's something that, to some degree, I think all of us share from one season or another in our lives. And when that happens, we can make it work for a while. But the reality is that we are not created to live apart from God. And so when we are living apart from God, this void starts to develop within us. A, a hunger or a restlessness for more starts to build within our hearts, within our souls. And we seek for something to satisfy that in the world that's around us. But when the world can't fulfill it in our hearts, we then start to ask questions like, is this it? Is this really all there is to life? Which is one of the main questions that the Alpha Course asks and helps people to answer. 
But often it's at those moments when people start to begin to seek out these spiritual questions of life. They want to know more about God because they think, well, it's not found in the physical material world. There must be something beyond that. And so they start to have these spiritual journeys that they go on. And perhaps they go on that for the first time. Perhaps they go on it because they had wandered. And it's actually more of a home call, a call home that they're receiving. A a recall back to what they once knew. It's like each of us has this, this spiritual homing beacon that's built into us that calls us towards our Heavenly Father. Now, we can choose to ignore it. We always have the choice, the opportunity to ignore that call. But if we choose to ignore it, that yearning and that hunger that exists within us will not go away. We can choose to to solve it with things of this world, but it always returns. It's like trying to catch the wind or trying to hold the beach in your hand. It just slips through your fingers and never truly fills us up. Because when there's a famine in our souls, when our spirits are parched, there is only one source that will truly ever satisfy. And that true source that only satisfies is Jesus Christ, which is what he would continually be drawing people towards in scriptures when he made statements and made promises, such as when he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and who believes in me will never thirst. You see, God made you, and God loves you. And God knows how best to direct you, to guide you, and to feed and nourish your soul. Because he is the bread of life. And in him we will never thirst again. You know, even if you have wandered far away and you feel like that table that has been set for you to feed your soul is at such a far distant land, you don't know the way to come back. Jesus also said that he has left the porch light on for us. Because not only is he the bread of life, but he is the light of the world. And that whoever will follow in him will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If there's a distance between you and God, at this point or at any point in the future in your life, you need to return home. Because the way to return home has been made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice he made upon the cross that paved that way for us to return home. And when we choose to do so, all of our sins can be washed away. All of the shame and all of the guilt that come with it that that we cling to, we can release and can be ours no more. Because God longs to welcome you back as his son. He longs to welcome you back as his daughter. And when he sees you returning to him, when he sees you coming back with humility and repentance, all heaven starts to celebrate with great joy because God declares, that's my son who is dead. That's my daughter who was lost. But now they are alive and they are found. And heaven begins to celebrate upon the return of the wayward son or of the repentant sinner. This is the good news of Jesus Christ that exists for all of us. Is that when we come to God in humility and when we come to him in repentance, he is eager to forgive and to restore. In fact, there is no forgiveness that doesn't also include restoration. This is amazing grace. But for those who lean more towards the true side of this continuum, it causes a problem. This can really cause a problem which is actually seen in the older brother in this story, who has faithfully been working in the fields the whole time that his younger brother has been off doing whatever he was up to doing. And when the older brother hears this faint sound of festivities back at the house, he's curious as to what's going on. And we pick up our story in verse 25. 
where the older brother calls a servant over to ask him what's been happening. And, and the servant just has this joy that he can't contain, and it's contagious to all that he encounters. And the servant states, well, your brother, your brother has come home, and your father is throwing him an incredible party. Come on, come join the celebration. But upon hearing this, the, the older brother is, is stunned that his younger brother could be reinstated and would be honored. And, and it tells us that the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So after a while, when the older brother wouldn't come in, the father goes out to the field to see him. And he's worried about him, and he's longing for this family to be reunited. And so he goes to plead with, with his eldest son to come in and join the celebration. And when he gets there, his son is still working. And he finds him enraged and frustrated, though. And, and he says to his father, all of these years, all these years I've been slaving for you. Never once did I disobey your orders. I followed all of the rules. I sacrificed for you. I gave you the sweat of my brow. And you never gave me so much as a goat so I could go celebrate with my friends. But when this, when this son of yours comes home, he doesn't even identify himself as a brother. When this son of yours comes home who has embarrassed the family, who has wasted all of the wealth on some epic Vegas-style binge, when he finally runs out of money, and comes crawling back, you reward him? How in the world does that make sense? Of all the people, you reward him. And we can read between the lines there. He's saying, what about me? But with patience and compassion, the father replies to his eldest son. He says, my son, you were always with me. Every, everything you see, everything I have has always been yours. You want a goat and a party? But, but, but so much more has always existed here and been available to you. You want recognition? At what point did you forget that you had sonship in my home? I, I'm sorry, but, but whether you'll accept or not, we celebrate because this brother of yours, not just my son, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost, but now he is found again. You know, we often refer to this story as the parable of the prodigal son, which is not wrong. But it is unfortunate in some ways. You see, the word prodigal refers to uh, spending freely and recklessly, kind of rebelliously in a way. And that's what the younger son did. The younger son leaves home, and he behaves recklessly. But we also see this in the story. We also see a prodigal father who calls you home and loves you recklessly. You see, his extravagance of love and his extravagance of grace qualifies him as truly prodigal from our perspectives. And this gives us a glimpse into that father heart of God that is revealed in the life, in the person, and in the character of Jesus Christ, who came full of grace and full of truth. Now, to some people, this is the offense of the gospel. To some people, this makes the gospel offensive, that such grace could be extended. Because we can understand celebrating the elder brother. We can understand that. Sterling character, spotless reputation, excellent work, high ideals, good conduct. We have no reason to assume any less of him. We have multiple reasons to admire his conviction, to admire the principles by which he stands. He can inspire us, but he can also turn us off because of his lack of forgiveness and because of his rigid stubbornness. 
Why throw a party for the prodigal son who turns his father's hair gray and ages his mother beyond her years? Why will we celebrate the person who blows the family nest egg? To some, this is the offense of grace. That a sinner could be welcomed, that a sinner could be restored. But remember, Jesus came full of grace. Jesus welcomed the sinners. He sat with the tax collectors. He ate with them. He had compassion upon them. Jesus allowed children to come sit on his lap, and he was kinder and gentler than any department store Santa. He healed the leopards. He healed the lame. He healed the blind. He saved a criminal upon the cross who with his dying breath confessed that Jesus truly was the Son of God. But while Jesus always led with grace, he never did so at the expense of truth because he was full of truth as well. He always obeyed God's law. He set the standard. He demanded everything from his followers. He condemned the religious leaders for their lies and their hypocrisy. He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. He prophesied judgment upon Jerusalem because of their unrepentant hearts. And he called those who would be his disciples to die daily and to take up their cross and to follow him. He demanded everything from those who would follow him. He was full of grace and he was full of truth. Because Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. All grace, all truth, all the time. But he did not come just simply to provide us an example of grace and truth. But he came to save us in grace and save us in truth. Because we all need truth. It's hard to hear sometimes. It's hard to hear the truth at times. But we do all need truth. We need to know the truth that the truth will set you free. We need somebody as gracious of Jesus to come be the truth and speak the truth to us when he says you are not okay on your own. And anyone who tells you otherwise is keeping you away from my truth. Anyone who tells you that you can push away those feelings of guilt, that you can push away the the condemnation of choosing the wrong way, anyone who tells you you can push away those is not telling you the truth. And they're keeping you from experiencing grace. We need somebody as gracious as Jesus to say that to us because he was full of grace as well. Because as he shows us that we are not okay on our own, we are not okay wayward, being wayward and wandering off on our own, that we need to come back. When he tells us that truth, he also receives us in grace, saying that you don't need to clean up your act before you come to God. If you come humbly, if you come with repentance, if you come today with that attitude of acceptance. You can come in your brokenness. You can come in your pain. But when you come with humility and repentance like a wayward son returning home who has squandered the inheritance and lived rebelliously, you can come back into the arms of a heavenly father. And you can hear the words, come to me, all you who are weary. If you're heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. We all need truth. We all need grace because we all need Jesus Christ who is perfect in grace and truth. You know, and on this Father's Day, I I hope this story provides a bit of a glimpse into that Father's heart of God. Because when I personally look at these things as as a father, I I need to examine myself and and think, have I experienced the grace and truth of God? And how do I live that out in my family? When I look at myself as a pastor, I think, have I experienced the truth and the grace of God? And how do I live that out amongst our church? Am I leading with grace that welcomes and accepts, but not at the expense of truth? Do I know and do I live God's will and standard, but do I do it in a way that lovingly draws people to come in 
and allow them to walk and discover that truth for themselves as well. How about you? What do you need to more fully experience of the Father heart of God? Is it his grace that provides rest for the weary? Or perhaps you need to experience more of his truth that provides freedom from sin. Or perhaps if you've been wandering for a while, you need to wander back into his presence again. Perhaps you need to be reminded on this Father's Day that you have a heavenly Father who never fails. You have a heavenly Father who is always perfect in love. You have a heavenly Father who is pleased when we walk with him, who corrects us when we wander, who welcomes us home when we come back with humility and repentance. We have a heavenly Father who provides and guides. We have one who directs and protects. We have one who has entrusted us with incredible blessings that we can use for his purposes and the furtherance of his kingdom. We have a Father who has given us incredible plans for our future individually, collectively as a church. We have a Heavenly Father who has placed us into this community of brothers and sisters that we may learn what it means to live in grace and truth, that we may sharpen one another, that we may comfort and love one another. And when all of these things happen, we return praise and glory back to Him. He is the perfect Father, perfect in grace and truth. And His love can appear radically prodigal to us at times because He is our good, good Father. Would you pray with me on this Father's Day? Heavenly Father, Lord, in each situation, we, we wrestle with, with responses at times. Sometimes habits or patterns take over in how we respond or react. But Lord, I pray that we, as those who are pursuing greater Christ-likeness, would come to have fresh experiences with your grace and with your truth. That we would see what that looks like in our own hearts, how it can transform our lives, but then how we can walk in your footsteps and reveal that to those that we encounter. That we would show grace to those who need to know you. Grace to those who may have wandered. Grace to those who may have stumbled. But that we may draw them back and love them enough to share the truth with them as well, Lord. That we would all grow into a further understanding and appreciation of our Heavenly Father who has given so much and loved so much. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.